Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The real future of the United States and international competition is just it's going to be about like, what do we have here? Like, are we a rich and prosperous and dynamic society? Hello and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. You may be familiar with my guest today, Matt Iglesias of Vox co-founding fame, Weed's host, my co-host over there on, on, on Fridays, um, somebody whose work as a blogger got me into blogging, who gave me some of my earliest links. I worked with him at The American Prospect, um, had a million uh, nights at the bar with him when I lived in D.C. We co-founded Vox along with Melissa Bell together, somebody who's been a, a huge influence on my career. And of course, a, a dear friend. Um, and Matt is out with a new book called One Billion Americans about the need to radically increase the American population through both uh, having more children, but also uh, importing or allowing more people to come here. And it's a kind of remarkable book of policy synthesis and in sort of framing it around this idea that the core driver of national prosperity and growth is actually people. And if we want to see America remain a preeminent nation with a rising China and India in the future, we're going to have to have more people. Then it can help us think about how to order a policy agenda behind that. Everything from how do you think about climate change such that adding more people is not a disaster for the globe to what is needed so people can actually buy a house, afford school, have health insurance, have preschool, have lives. Uh, there's a lot of really, really interesting and really challenging policy thinking in here. But also because I've known Matt a long time, uh, in a weird way, it's hard to ask your friends some of the questions you want to know about them and their backgrounds because you got to you gotta act like you know people, not interrogate them when you see them for a drink. So I get to do a bit of that in this podcast, which is a lot of fun. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Matt Iglesias. Matthew Iglesias, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here at long last. Finally, we get to do a podcast together. It's a different podcast, though. <laughs> it's got a, it's got its whole own vibe. I'm excited about this because one of the things I find fun about podcasting with people I know well is I get to ask all kinds of questions that are weird to ask, even like in a normal social setting, because sure. you're not supposed to talk to your friends like um, they're a, an interviewee you've never met before. But so now I get to, I get to like drop all my Matt Iglesias preconceptions and ask a bunch of weird questions of you. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm excited. I'm nervous, but All excited. Right. You should be nervous. This is going to be tough. What was the first blog you read? 
I don't remember if it was Kaus Files, Talking Points Memo, or Andrew Sullivan's Daily Dish. Um, it was it, roughly all three of those at about the same time. How, how did you get into them? Were you were you coming in for for an issue, or what were you? What was happening that as a college student you began reading all these weird blogs of of people who got cranky? So I was an intern uh, in Chuck Schumer's office in the summer of 2001. So this was before before 9-11, before the whole war blog thing happened. Uh, and so I was working for Schumer's communications director. And one of my responsibilities was assembling the daily clips packet. Uh, and that mostly meant, I mean, this... It really dates me. It really makes you sound like an old man. The main job was to take this big stack of print newspapers, uh, cut out any articles that mentioned Chuck Schumer, uh, copy them on the, the the Xerox machine, and like put them together into a bundle that would then be faxed to the D.C. office and to the uh, regional offices. Like there was one in Rochester, one in Buffalo, you know, like that. I was in I was in New York City, so that was the the mainstay of the clip job. But I also was supposed to like search for him online or track his online mentions. And I came across a couple times he wound up being mentioned in Slate, which at that time, you remember Slate used to have like today's papers as a, I do. as a feature. Yeah. So this was like a big, a big like Slate content thing at that point it was like every day they had an article that was summarizing stuff that was in newspapers. And then every week they had an article that was summarizing stuff that was in uh, like newsweeklies because like those were a thing at that time. Um, then they briefly had this feature and it was like a blogs roundup. And Schumer, I think over the course of the summer, got mentioned in that Slate blogs roundup a few different times. I don't at all remember why, but that was how I first got to those early blogs that were done by by Mickey Kaus, by Josh Marshall, and by Andrew Sullivan. And those three, I, I always think of as the sort of the founding fathers of the blogosphere. And uh, I, 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 I like their sites. And so I started reading them regularly, not just as a kind of catches can catch clips thing. And that's my that's my blog origin. What was your takeaway from working as a Senate intern? Um, it was an unusual thing because so I, I was in New York, right? Um, not in D.C. So the, the New York City office was relatively small, but Schumer's communications director was one of those real New York snobs um, who just hated D.C. And so he would spend like one night a week in D.C. when the Senate was in session, uh, the rest of the time in in New York. Um, so I so I worked like very closely, very directly with him. Um, and then Schumer, part of his shtick is that every weekend he does a press conference for local news, uh, and so we would sort of alternate between upstate, you know, outstate offices and every other week in New York City. Uh, so I would sort of personally staff a lot of those New York City weekend press conferences. So I got a sort of a fair amount of like FaceTime with with the senator, like, you know, me and him and some New York NYPD cop who was his driver in the city. Uh, like we drove up to Yankee Stadium and we did some press event about blood donations with Joe Torrey up there, which was really cool. Uh, I think, you know, the biggest thing that I learned in that time that um, 
Bradley Tusk was the the communications director. He's like a tech guy now, a, a startup guy. He didn't really like politics. And this was part of what made him such a great communications director, because his whole thing was that the marginal voters, right? The voters you're actually trying to persuade of things. They also don't like politics and they don't care like what's in Politico didn't exist at that time, but um, like what's in roll call, right? What's in back then people don't know back then is like CNN's inside politics. The 2 p.m. show like played that role. Right. And it was a weird time. And so and so Bradley would always say, look, I've got all these staffers and like they live in D.C. and they're obsessed with politics and their friends are obsessed with politics and they want to see their bosses on inside politics. They want to see their bosses quoted in the hotline. Right. And like my job is to keep this team focused on local television news stations in Binghamton and Buffalo and newspapers in Syracuse. And, you know, can we get mentioned somehow in the sports pages? You know, I talked about this stunt with with Joe Torre, right? But like that was the whole point was like that got Chuck Schumer doing something helpful in front of an audience that was not obsessed with politics. The biggest thing we did that summer, um, this is again, it's like... This is not that long ago, but it's ancient technology. There used to be this thing where you could press star six nine or star six six. Yeah. And get special phone features, right? So the phone company would charge Star Six Nine would call somebody back for you. Exactly. Uh, so that's what Brad- I remember. It was like if, yeah. you, if you heard it ring and you missed it, you could star six nine and sometimes ring the person back. Not in time, press star six nine and it would automatically redial who- whoever had last called you if you didn't have caller ID. So the phone company would charge you for star six nine, but they wouldn't tell you that they were going to charge you. It would just show up on your phone bill. So we just like we killed it with a press event, like denouncing this and saying it was a scam. And we like the senator would be up there with some primitive. I think it was a Motorola StarTac, uh, you know, primitive mobile phone. And he would dial it and like show it to to the the cameras that no warning was given about this charge. And he would tell this sob story about some friend of his whose daughter had racked up hundreds of dollars. And it was like a big hit when we did in the city. And so then we went on the road tour. Right. He did it. I think in all his different, you know, upstate media markets. And we had to calculate like how much money was going to be saved by Albany families uh, in this thing. And, you know, he he got the FCC to promulgate a a new rule about this eventually. So it, it worked in terms of helping people, but also to some extent, his political talents were wasted on New York State, which he had won a tough race in 1998. But that was like the last time there was a remotely competitive statewide election in New York State. And like he could do anything and would just get reelected. But he had this incredible hustle and this incredible instinct for the fact that like the way you convince people who are like most people aren't persuadable, but the people who are persuadable, they want to see that you are impacting their lives in tangible ways, and they want to see you doing it in media outlets that are not geared toward people who are obsessed with politics. And I think about that like all the time. It doesn't influence- I feel like like I've been hearing this more from you actually lately that that one of your- one of the things that when I think of like the Matt Iglesias political worldview right now is at the front is that Democratic- I mean, all politicians, but we've been talking a lot about the Democratic race- 
are completely distorted by paying too much attention to not just political media, but to political activist groups. And so their sense of like who their voters are has gone completely into the wind and they're making constant political missteps because they're they're forgetting like the Bradley Tusk lessons of politics. Yeah, I mean, I, I exactly. I mean, that's been sort of my post-2016 kind of theme is that Democrats have, I think, gotten too far away from that uh, that kind of thing. You know, we I, we were just uh, for for the weeds. We were interviewing uh, Veronica Escobar, a Texas uh, member of Congress. And, you know, she is very she is a safe blue seat in El Paso and she's very engaged on border issues, on immigration issues. Uh, but, you know, I asked her like what she thought about um, Trump's apparent success with the with the Latino vote. And, you know, she didn't put it in those exact Bradley Tusk frames, but she was saying the exact same thing that, look, you have, you know, like not the the average Latino is a loyal Democrat, has been for years and will continue to be, but that, you know, you have a lot of people, working class people of color as as well as white, who like they're very busy they're working really hard. They're trying to put food on the table for their families. They don't like politics that much. They just don't think it's interesting. And like they don't want to hear from Democrats abstract ideological appeals to racial solidarity. They want to hear something like, you know, here's how we're going to fix your high school, right? We're going to we're going to get the plumbing better there. And as Democrats have become more and more the party of highly educated people, uh, which has, you know, been a strength in a lot of ways and has let them incorporate, uh, frankly, a lot of like cosmopolitan themes that I agree with uh, in a much more robust way, it does tend to encourage them be- because the people who do the politics themselves are obviously college graduates who love politics and the small donor base is college graduates who love politics, but to get like so spun up into these kind of abstractions, right? Like what, you know, the, a, a politically sound version of this, it's it's not like unpopular when, when you talk about like the soul of America or this is not who we are as a country, but still like that's appealing to a certain level of abstraction versus a certain level of concreteness that's like, here's the thing, here's what I'm doing for you, here's how your life will improve in a specific way if I win the election. And the political media, I mean, this is not just like on Democrats, it's objectively challenging because the politics-focused media doesn't like to cover those stories, right? Like the most boring story in the world would be to say Democrats support raising the minimum wage whereas Republicans oppose it. Because like, who cares, right? Like, it's not new. It's not sexy. It's not interesting. It's not going to go viral. Uh, But that kind of thing is actually very important to less political voters, right? Because like, you might be making the minimum wage or have somebody in your family who is. So one thing that I take as a difference in sort of my view of politics right now and yours is just like, I hate Twitter much more than you do. And I think Mm -hmm. it has had more of a poisonous effect on politics. But one of the things that I think is telling about it is that those kinds of issues, not necessarily soul of America things, but identity oriented issues, kind of like like what I think you're referring to is like highly educated political professional issues. They really dominate there. I mean, Mm -hmm. the minimum wage fights just don't absorb Twitter for days and days and days in the way that uh, like 
race fights do, gender fights do, cancel culture fights do, like a hundred other things that I think like fall into this box of uh, of things that like Chuck Schumer's team didn't want to be talking about in, in, in the early aughts. And I'm curious why you think that is. Why is it that there's this basket of issues that is so valuable to political um, junkies of, of both professional and amateur persuasions that is not shared then by people who are not that interested in politics? Like, why doesn't the ladder of engagement go all the way down versus there being this kind of like break at some point where a different kind of issue becomes more engaging that is being neglected? Well, you know, I mean, I think that people who are highly engaged with politics, you know, that's an important part of their identity, right? And then they form certain kinds of ascriptive groups on that basis, right? And I think the content of those identity groups can actually shift around, right? So like, for a while, Medicare for All was like a huge classic flashpoint on Twitter. So I don't think it's that like, race and gender identity issues necessarily always dominate on there, whereas economics and stuff doesn't, is that there's a kind of digital tribalism among people who love politics, right? And so, like, there are people who are so mad at me, like, today. They're furious because years ago, like, I expressed skepticism that a Medicare for all campaign platform would be a great idea for Democrats to adopt, right? It's like fury and and rage. And like, it shows how corrupt I am and how corrupt you are, too. I mean, to, to be clear, we're, we're both in it. And now, like, nobody talks about Medicare for all, right? Like, it's like completely vanished from the realm of stuff people are yelling about on Twitter for the moment. Uh, But for a while, people were incredibly exercised about it. But what they weren't exercised about was like the boring details of healthcare policy, where it would be, you know, we could do price regulations, we could, you know, Biden, right, he has some proposal to peg the subsidies, I think, to gold-rated plans rather than silver. Um, And it's like, you cannot get people to be interested in that, right? The, The only way you could get people to be interested in that is if I were to assert that Biden's healthcare plan was really good, some left wing people would like dunk on me because it's like everybody is dying and all anyone wants is free health care. And here's this asshole talking about Joe Biden's complicated plan. But that's like the world of ideologue. And it's the world of people with very firm convictions, you know, which is me too. Like, I don't want to say like, I've achieved uh, an incredibly enlightened plane of, of nuance that other people haven't. It's that all of us who care a lot about politics care about the signposts that demonstrate whether somebody else like cares in the same way as we do or cares about the same things as we do. And then there's this whole, I mean, famously, right? It's like a huge share of the eligible population just never votes. That's like a huge block of people is the people who don't vote at all. Then there's like a big block of people who sometimes vote and sometimes don't. And then there's a smaller group of people who vote very regularly, but switch between the parties all the time. And those people, right, like those are the margins on which elections are won and lost. And in different ways, the non-voters, the sporadic voters and the swing voters are just all people who don't 
care as much as the rest of us. And so they're really interested in random things that impact them in some kind of specific way, or they get fired up about something out of left field that, you know, we hadn't been thinking about. Whereas those of us who are like there in the take trenches day in and day out care a lot about these kind of um, affiliation points, I think. It can be bad. I mean, I I, I like Twitter and I, I have a lot of fun on there and I, and I learn a lot. Uh, but definitely if I was like running a political operation, I would be trying really hard to get people to to tune it way, 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 way down and pay a lot more attention to what's on local TV news. What's it like going? Th- this reminds me of a question I have wanted to ask you, uh, which could also easily, as you say, apply to me. But what's it like going from young guy on the new media platform who annoys the establishment pundits and yells at them for being too soft and incrementalist and DLC-ish to middle-aged guy who is seen as the establishment by young people coming up on on the new platforms? Like, what does it what does it teach you going through the circle of pundit life like that? Oh, it's so weird. You know, I mean, you know, one thing is just the kind of basic cycle of disillusionment, right? Where because Biden is the nominee, um, the sort of younger, more left wing people are not going to get to live this someday. You know, it won't be Bernie Sanders, but it'll be somebody right like AOC or Ilhan Omar or somebody like that is going to become president. And then people are going to learn the lesson that I think you and I learned about Barack Obama's presidency, which is just like it doesn't matter as much as you would think to have somebody. I, I want to say that in before Obama was president, I did an American Prospect cover story called The President Doesn't Matter as Much as You Think. And like the American Prospect board got mad at us for it. But but I was I was on that tip. <laughs> yeah, but it but it but it but it mattered less than that even. Like I, I just don't know, right? Like it's like that is was, fair. Yeah. <laughs> Barack Obama, right? He's like he was a writer. Um, I really liked him. I like talked to him several times, like before he was a presidential candidate. I felt like I knew him much better than I know Joe Biden. And at the time, I was like really gratified to have somebody who I felt like was like a really good guy, like a smart, thoughtful person in all the right kind of ways in the White House. And I just came by the end of it to think that like that was just not that important. You know, like I I liked it. I I like him as a personality better than I like Joe Biden. And I I liked um, a number of candidates in the 2020 field as personalities better than I like Biden. But I also by the time 2020 came around, I like I really thought it didn't matter who the nominee was, except, you know, it mattered a little bit for electability. It matters some on on foreign policy, but like, it's just less important than people want to make it out to be, which, which they'll learn. The other thing, though, is that like the Overton window in American politics has shifted really far to the left. When I was a like left wing enfant terrible, I had opinions like we shouldn't cut Social Security and we should let gay and lesbian couples get married if they want to. And those are now like such banal sellout establishment views, uh, but they just weren't in 2005, 2006. Right. So, you know, if I'd be yelling at people, um, it would be about ideas that like nobody would express today. Right. They're like so outre and, and weird. Um, or even Donald Trump doesn't want to cut Social Security anymore. So like that's gone. Or it used to be that Democrats wouldn't want to talk about climate change 
change, they would say that we need to get energy independence. Um, and so then I, as like a doctrinaire leftist, would say like, no, like <laughs> we actually have to cut carbon dioxide emissions to address climate change. And again, now, like that's like, nobody would think that was an interesting thing to say, right? And the whole deal to be on the cutting edge left is like... I don't know, like Green New Deal. Like, it's just, it's a much more complicated ideological constructs that we didn't used to have. Uh, so that's been interesting to me. But like, that's always been my dream, right? Like some people, I think, in left of center punditry are like obsessed with trying to own the space as being the true progressive and like beat down anybody who's to their left. And I'm not like that. I'm always like, I want to be in the uh, Evan Bayh position in politics where your ideas actually get to carry the day, uh, which means that you need a robust ecosystem of people who are much more left wing than me, which I think we are starting to have. And like those people annoy me all the time, uh, sometimes because they're objectively annoying, sometimes just because it's annoying to be criticized even when you deserve it. But I think it's good to sort of have that ecosystem built, right? That the olden days when like you and I like firing away at tapped uh that was the, the American Prospect blog. Like that, like, well, we we weren't gonna get anything done that way. It's like you don't want to be like the leftmost people in the discourse. You wanna you wanna be the establishment. And so I I, I consider that all a great victory. I always remember that I wrote some, I think it was at Tapped that I did this. I wrote some blog post yelling at um, DLC neoliberals. And I got asked by the Washington Monthly, like, why do you keep attacking neoliberals? And they said, you know, well, like we created neoliberalism. Like, why don't you come do an interview with Charlie Peters about what neoliberalism really is? And so I, I went and did that. And there's like this um, conversation between me and the Washington Monthly founder Charlie Peters on 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 the web somewhere. But then later in my career, I'd say my opinions only moved left during this period of time. But I became like seen as the neoliberal, which also just reflects the idea of neoliberalism changing a little bit. But it's a very funny thing to watch politics rotate around you. And I think a healthy thing. I, I, I don't think I don't think politics should remain should remain that stable. But it brings me to to, to my next question for you, which is um, how do the politics of 2020 Matt Iglesias differ from the politics of 2001 Matt Iglesias? What what are the biggest things you've really moved on or changed your mind on? Uh, so I become like way more pacifistic about the use of military force. I was, you know, going back like pre 9-11, I was definitely from the it's good to have this Kosovo war frustrated that the Clinton administration wasn't doing more in Bosnia, looking back, saying it was a big mistake not to intervene in Rwanda. Then obviously 9-11 happened. There were wars in Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, but, you know, dating before that, right, the, the reason I was on board for the post 9-11 hawkish turn in U.S. foreign policy is that I was somebody who wanted a turn like that before we were, we were attacked by terrorists. And I just, I, I really think that's like, incredibly misguided. I mean, not just the specifics of the war in Iraq, which everybody now thinks, but the general idea that the United States should maintain a large military establishment for basically non-defensive purposes and then use it a lot as a constructive way of engaging with the world. Like I think that's I think that's really, really, really wrong. And I think probably the 
biggest place in which I've changed. Um, you know, beyond that, I've been on a sign curve about sort of how people should think about race issues in terms of the sort of political utility of like directly calling out and confronting racism. Um, I think it used to be the overwhelming conventional wisdom that like you should never talk about race from a center left perspective, that all that like race did in politics was it was a way for conservatives to win elections by making economic redistribution politically toxic. I was like, a little skeptical of that conventional wisdom. I was eager to see sort of more robust uh, anti-racist uh, dialogue coming out after Barack Obama became president. I thought it was good that we were confronting some of these topics. Um, and now I think I, I think that that's overshot, you know. And I think that there is a, a need to bring back some of the the old thought that it's politically and socially constructive to like talk more about what what brings people together and to do a little bit less sort of searing inquiry into everything. So that's one where. I feel like I've changed a little and I feel like the world has really like pivoted around me in slightly crazy ways. I, I also think I've changed my mind like seven times about the this is like endless debate about whether you should have universal programs or whether they should be means tested. And I feel like I've changed my mind like many, many, many times about that. I'm currently on universal is good, but I I, I hold on. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to flip-flop again at some point. A bunch of things in there strike me as, and particularly the race question, strike me as relating to like, what are the roles of different players in politics. And something I've thought a lot about over the past couple of years is I think that people tend to establish everybody or assume everybody is supposed to be a like a communications actor in mainstream electoral politics when you know you have an ecosystem of folks and some people are like just trying to say what they think is true you know academics or hopefully journalists and some people are activists trying to push the window and say things that aren't even always 100% true, but are meant to like make their issues either get more centrality or make them more popular. And other people are Joe Biden trying to win elections. And, you know, you've got this sort of whole world of people. And one of the things that strikes me as being like part of the political confusions of the moment is social media in particular collapsed all the boundaries between these people. And so like exactly. they're always in a way that wasn't true when I was coming up in like the American prospect, you just didn't have in an ongoing public way political consultants, political activists, political journalists, and politicians all yelling at each other in the same conversation <laughs> in public always. But now you do. And so one thing that it seems to me to all constantly be happening is people accusing other folks of wrongdoing because they're not playing like the role in politics they want to see them playing, but that's also not their exact role in politics. I didn't used to like a lot of the sort of fake boundaries in politics, but I sort of miss some of the capacity to say, yeah, like, like these people over here are doing opinion and these people over here are like reporting the news and these people over here are political consultants and like they don't all have to follow the same rules. It was useful for people to understand different actors have ha as having different functions. And I think there's a lot of confusion as those functions have all converged into like, one insanely loud, hard-to-follow online conversations. Right. I mean, the problem is, is that on some level, we're just all out here slinging 
content, right? So it's like everybody produces tweets and everybody produces podcasts and everybody produces books. And it's hard to like assess sometimes like what's what. And you have more and more nonprofit journalism happening. You have, you know, you just have like a lot of different things going on. And I agree a lot of the time if you read a statement and you're like, okay, if I read this as a political document, right? Like I am trying to get people to vote for me. You'll say like, okay, fair enough, right? Like that that is great. On the other hand, if you say like, no, okay, this is supposed to be something to educate people. You're like, uh, that's really not so great, right? Because when you're trying to inform Form people, you want to underscore the complexity of an issue because, like, that's how people learn, right? So it's like, I'm going to really highlight what's hard about this. I'm going to really highlight the dissonant information and give rigorous arguments about it. I'm going to explain trade offs in particular in a clear way, right? That's the educational function of scholarship or, or journalism. And activism is antithetical to that, right? Like, you would be doing activism wrong if you admitted that there were trade-offs to your policy preferences. Like, that's just not, like, how you do it. But it's not just that, like, the roles are unclear. I think that people themselves have become unclear. Like, I read journalism output that feels to me like it would be fine if it was activism, but it really seems like, no, this is supposed to be journalism, you know, and that kind of flattening where it's hard for people to say, okay, my role here is not just to sort of be flattering toward the candidate who I prefer, but is to actually like explore the issue in a real way. Um, Or also that like, like it can be the opposite, you know? So it's like, I would do an article, I think I, I, I wrote about um, how Elizabeth Warren's like general election polling was really bad, that her her favorable ratings uh, w- with the general public were, were really bad. And people took that as like a, a hit on her and they wanted to know what was my like ulterior motive. Um, and honestly, I didn't have an ulterior motive. Like I, I really like Elizabeth Warren. Um, I've interviewed her many times. I've written uh, very positively about her book, about some of her main policy ideas. Like that was just my observation. Like I was talking to election minded people. I was looking at the numbers. There was a lot of curiosity about electability. And it just like it seemed to me that her numbers were bad. And that's why I was saying that. But it was hard to it's like hard to persuade anyone that anything is done in good faith out there. And it's, you know, it's become a real issue, right? I mean, both on the production and the audience side, like, does anyone actually care to consume journalism in its like, fussy journalism with a capital J kind of sense? Or does everyone just kind of want to hear, you know, about how terrible all of their opponents are? I I think about this as a culture change. Um, So I think we should say, as I understand this part, it's kind of hitting the lineages of opinion journalism and magazine journalism. I think there's still, you know, people read the news pages of the Washington Post and, and, and kind of see it as something different. But in those worlds, like when we came into, um, when, when you and I were young men, when we were at the American Prospect, like the dominant 
form and culture of opinion journalism was provocation. And the New Republic was the master of this, but Slate and the Slate Pitch were part of it too, right? The idea was like you wanted to provoke people and get them talking and make them mad at you or make them mad. And the upside of wanting to be provocative, counterintuitive, was it it was like a nice push sometimes to question the conventional wisdom and figure out things to say that were maybe new and unusual um, and sometimes even true. Now, the problem with being provocative and counterintuitive, like as a strategy, is you often were one, an asshole, and two, wrong. Because oftentimes, like the banal, the conventional wisdom was correct. And like then that changed. And I think that in like opinion journalism in general now, there's very, very little tolerance for provocation. Like people want you to say things that are like hopefully true, but much more to the point, like, position taking in a correct way. And like, again, like the upside of some of that is I think there's more respect for expertise than there was in that in that previous era. Um, I think there's more concern with like the moral valence of journalism than there was in that previous era. But there is a like a like a lack of tolerance and oftentimes a concern about one saying the wrong thing. Um, but two, just like exploring things just to explore them. Like it's not a, like very little in journalism feels like, with the exception to some degree of podcasting actually, which is I think why a lot of us have have like run over to it. There's very little in journalism feels like a truly exploratory space, um, which was, which felt more common um, to me at least 10, 15 years ago. Right. I mean, you know, so I, I should probably mention my book, One Billion Americans, which to me, right, the book is very much inspired by what I think of as the best of that kind of slate tradition or New Republic before it, Michael Kinsley, right? Like, come up with something weird. There should be a billion Americans. And people are going to be like, what? And then, like, try to convince them that it's true, right? You know, so it's like you try to discombobulate people a little bit, and then you try to explain stuff. You you try to be rigorous. You know, you try to be educational. You try to be informative. Uh, Obviously, there was a lot of that kind of thing that was bad, right? A fair amount of it involved straw manning. It involved sort of being willfully obtuse about what was going on, uh, you know, in, in certain areas or positing stuff that just like didn't make sense, right? So there was a an infamous one like Greg Easterbrook, who was like, he was a real master of this genre of, you know, counterintuitive journalism where he was like, George W. Bush is going to be the greatest climate president. Um, And like he wasn't right. Like (laughs) electing Al Gore, the politician of our time who was most focused on the climate change issue more than anybody else would have been good for climate change, electing this like random oil guy from Texas. That was really bad. Right. And that was a really close election. A lot of people voted Ralph Nader. A lot of people, a lot of people did a lot of things, right? And I think it's like, look, like if even one person somewhere was convinced by this Greg Easterbrook take, like that was really fucked up, you know, like on his part. And people in that era didn't take, I think they didn't take their role seriously enough. You know what I mean? They weren't, they weren't sitting there being like, wait, like, what if somebody decides this is correct and goes and acts on that belief and it turns out to be wildly wrong aren't i going to be a little sad that i didn't even like kick the tires on this premise more that i just kind of dashed it off because it sounded clever at the bar and i think it's good that people now 
take it seriously, right? Like sometimes too seriously, but I think it's good to take your, to err on the side of taking yourself more seriously than it deserves, you know, makes sense to me, right? It's like, it's your own work. So like you ought to take it seriously. But I do think that we have lost some sense of the idea that you're not there to just tell the audience that all of their ideas are already correct. Like, that doesn't make sense, right? Or to just say that everybody who's demographically similar to you is already correct about everything. That if you're not sometimes at odds, and if you're not trying to navigate toward those areas where people's where people in your audience's preconceptions are wrong, it's like you're not accomplishing anything, right? You're just turning yourself into a kind of replacement level creator of digital chum. And I think that's bad. I mean, it's it's intellectually unhealthy, but like it's also bad for people's careers to not be like emotionally robust to getting yelled at online. Yezra Klanja will be back after a short break. So your first book, for people who don't know it, was a book about foreign policy, Heads in the Sand. And then your second book was a a, a shorter, like an e-book, um, The Rent is Too Damn High. And you had in that period moved away from being a, a foreign policy writer. Mm-hmm. And as you know, I would try to make you write foreign policy stuff at Vox. You'd be like, eh, I'm, I'm, I'm focused over here now. And so I was really interested to open this one up and find that it is framed first and foremost as a foreign policy book. It is framed first and foremost as a book driven by a concern about whether or not America would be able to maintain its influence and centrality in the global system vis-a-vis a rising China. Where did that come from? Is that a frame that you use to like get into the one billion Americans idea, or is that actually the motivating concern of the book? So Kant had this idea of transcendental deduction, right, which was going to be like his way out of the incredible, what he saw as the skeptical intellectual puzzles uh, that David Hume posed. And so I think so much of the stuff that you write and say is sort of demonstrates the impossibility of ever fixing anything or ever improving anything. <laughs> At least that's my skeptical Ezra Klein to, to, to the skeptical reading of, of Hume. And so then the question is like, well, like, what are we doing here? Right? Like, what are the circumstances under which it could be possible to do anything, given the sort of daunting obstacles there? And to me, international crisis is sort of the answer to that question, right? That these are the moments that the the pressure of America's national identity and global identity and global role is the thing that frequently moves the political system out of the sort of narrow, what are my individual incentives as a particularistic political actor? And so that got me thinking more about America in the world, right? And and China, which is absolutely out there. And, you know, what does this amount to? And it's not a coincidence that, like, the small slivers of bipartisanship that we see in the Trump era are about China. You know, Chuck Schumer 
praised the decision to go after TikTok. Um, this is like the area in which people see Americans as a common entity and not like two warring tribes contesting for political power. And so, you know, I was thinking about like, well, what what can we do with that idea? Like what what can come out of it? And, you know, this is not a book about foreign policy, right? I mean, I think a real foreign policy book about China, you would want to talk about like, how do we make an alliance with Vietnam? Or like, should we have submarines in the Philippines? Or, you know, something else like that. Uh, but, you know, I'm trying to say, look, if we see America in decline, in relative decline, how does that make us feel? And like, I think it makes us feel bad. I think the idea that America should be great or great again uh, has very broad purchase in American politics. I, I think it's correct. I think the idea that we have a lot of political and moral values in common uh, that we really don't have with the PRC leadership is correct. I mean, we could see that, like, well, what are the sinews of national strength, right? Like, it's it's the people and the prosperity of the people. And ultimately, it feels to me that we we uphold our international role by sort of tending our own garden effectively, not by bragging about how much money we're throwing at military equipment. Um, and so the book is is really about that. I want to hold you there for a second because that struck me as an interesting move you're making. You don't spend a ton of time on it conceptually, but you were saying earlier that the way you've changed since the early aughts is you've become much more pacifistic. But you haven't become, and it's clear from this book, disillusioned with the idea that America should try to play a central role in the world. And so it, it does seem to me that one thing you're doing here, and please just tell me if this is a, a, an incorrect reading, is that you are looking for an alternative grounding for American foreign policy strength. And there's always been a progressive like line of rhetoric, the sort of John Kerry, like we shouldn't be building firehouses in Baghdad while we're letting them crumble here at home that says like, you know, American strength comes from, from, from investing here. But you seem to be framing a progressive idea of natalism mm -hmm. as both a like a generator of progressive values, right? You should have people and, you know, give them a good life, um, but also a generator of a different kind of American strength because it would give us more innovation and economic power and do so without forcing us into uh, war or saber rattling as a recourse as we find ourselves in decline. So we, we were on the same trip to, to China, right? Yes. So uh, over there, when we were over there, one of the Chinese guys who, you know, they, years and years and years yeah, ago, so I should they, say. Yeah, they trotted all these people out at like different interminable meetings and like really long meals. But like one of the guys over there said some like smug thing about like China won the war in Afghanistan. And then like 10 years later, we're still fighting this war in Afghanistan. And I think it's really true, right, that like. America has been sort of squandering resources on these military adventures in places that are not that important. And, you know, you can look at the money that was spent there and you can say, oh, like, wouldn't it be great if we had like really cool trains um, instead of like a war in Afghanistan? And it would be great because like the trains would be cool, but it's not just that it would be nice to have the trains. Like our actual national security position would be much stronger today if we had spent the past 20 years addressing infrastructure needs. Uh, another version of this argument, right, that, that comes to mind is um, Jerry Taylor, who's now become this intellectually interesting Miss Cannon Center guy. But I first met him, he was like a kind of banal Cato Institute energy guy. Uh, but even so, what he was saying there was that like, the amount of money we were spending 
on trying to maintain the security of Middle Eastern oil supplies was like wildly out of proportion to the actual economic value of the oil. And we could just be spending that money on like building windmills, like not for climate change reasons, but just like in dollars and cents terms, it didn't didn't make any sense as an investment. So, you know, those lines of thought, I don't think either of those people are quoted directly in the book, but they very much sort of inspired me there, right? That it's like the real future of the United States and international competition is just, it's going to be about like, what do we have here? Like, are we a rich and prosperous and dynamic society? Because in a pinch, I mean, if you look at, at America's involvement in the world wars, right? Like in 1939, like the American military was total garbage, uh, but America wasn't garbage. America was the richest country on the planet. And so like when we had to throw a military together, boom, like we did it. No problem. Now, God hopes like we're not going to have a war like that. Uh, But the point is that even in that extreme, it's the fundamentals that went out. So before we get into this question of why rapidly increasing population would make us stronger, I want to go through what's what will be the objection people have hearing this or reading the book, which is climate change. So on a per capita basis, Americans use more or emit more greenhouse gases than anyone else, um, with the exception of some very, very small country players. And then if you bring people here, if you immigrate um, from or emigrate, I'm sorry, from you know, Brazil or Mexico uh, to America, you're going, your carbon emission uses and intensity is going to go up. So climate change, how does that interact with the 1 billion Americans theory? Right. So there's sort of two issues here. One is the biggest driver of increased emissions, if like foreigners move here, is just that they become more prosperous, right? So, you know, if you move here from Haiti, your income goes up probably five or six fold. Um, and so, yeah, like your your emissions go way up. But the solution to the climate change problem can't just be, well, look, everyone who's poor is going to stay poor forever. On the one hand, like I think that would be immoral. But on the other hand, like it wouldn't work. Like the, the United States does not have the capacity to stop India and Vietnam and Nigeria and Kenya from trying to industrialize and become more prosperous. They're just, they're not going to do it. Then conversely, you know, the United States is on a per capita basis, the biggest emitter, where I think on the historical basis, still the biggest emitter. But on a current basis, we're not even close to being the number one emitter. Our emissions are trending downward. China's and India's are trending up. And we're something like 15% of, of the global pie. So even if you somehow like made American CO2 emissions vanish or something, that doesn't solve the problem, right? So curbing economic development can't be part of the solution. Constraining U.S. emissions can't solve the problem. Fundamentally, you do have a political challenge to deploy existing clean technologies that work And then you have a technical challenge to, like, develop other technologies that will work to solve other aspects of the 
problem. And, you know, so what I say in the book is like, we we should do what we can to solve those hard technical problems. It's like not what the book is about, but like you, you got to do something, right? Like we, we need a way to make steel and concrete uh, that don't use carbon emissions. Uh, we need like some stuff about agriculture. And then, you know, on the deployment side, the things that you need to do to sort of get the billion Americans, the infrastructure renewal, the housing stock renewal, those are also the things that you need to do to have clean energy, right? That if you look in a brass tacks way, it's like, why don't we all have solar panels on our roofs? Why don't we have an emissions grid that can balance renewables and switch them on smartly on and off? Like, why don't we uh, explore nuclear microreactors? Like a million other things. It's because we have these political structures that lend themselves to not building anything and really not doing anything at all. And so I think there's like an incredible sort of thematic and intellectual resonance between a billion Americans and the idea of like a Green New Deal, right? The idea that uh, climate change is not going to be addressed through like neo-pastoralism. We're not going to all go live in the countryside somewhere and like do more composting. Uh, we need to. But wait, I want to I want to hold you on that. I want to hold you on that point for a second. You know my views on this, but but I do want to I do want to give the objection its currency yeah. here. There are a lot of people who do say that for human life to remain sustainable within a reasonable climate band, we will have to move into some kind of degrowth mode. And particularly rich countries like the U.S. I mean, this is a yeah. is part of Greta Thunberg's rhetoric. Um, it's something that you hear a lot in 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 the argument. There are now like IQ squared debate kind of things on this that pop up in my feed all the time. And there is this idea, uh, sometimes an almost moralistic idea, but it does have some truth to it that. The climate disaster is a price we are paying for growth, and the only way out of it is is less growth. So when you say that's not true, like give me the actual like you've 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 done work on these economic issues for a long time. Why are the degrowthers wrong? Because climate change is not as bad as they say. It's like I I, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to be the person who's like, oh, climate change is no problem, or oh, we shouldn't do anything about it. It's that. The people who say, okay, this will lead to the extinction of humanity, right? They're making a very extreme claim that would warrant really extreme solutions. Like if you had to impoverish half the globe to prevent human extinction, like you'd go do it. Right. If you had to launch preemptive airstrikes on coal plants in the developed world, you would go do that. Right. Like it would be a total no-brainer. Like we should tomorrow fire up the jets, and drop bombs on every coal power plant all around the world. No brainer if you really believe like we're teetering on the brink of that kind of apocalypse. Um, but we just aren't. What you're instead looking at is like, quote unquote, only the deaths of hundreds of millions of people through flooding and it, like horrible things that like makes me feel horrible to be anyone downplaying it. Like you could be looking at the worst catastrophe ever. And like we should be doing really urgent things to avert that. But what we shouldn't be doing is giving up on human life or the idea of prosperity because the status quo is like really bad for people in poor countries. Like being someplace where 
there's all kinds of subsistence farming and people have no electricity. Like, that's terrible. Like, we need to have solutions, both politically, because, like, it just won't work. Like, you can sit around and talk about, oh, well, we should have degrowth. But, like, guess what? Like, we won't. We won't have degrowth and other countries won't have degrowth. And unilateral degrowth wouldn't accomplish anything. So, like, we, we need to work on things that create the energy that people need and that make it in sustainable ways. And we've had an incredible amount of good news on that front, right? I mean, solar technology like really works well. Electric cars now really work well. And it is like a scandal that we are not just throwing money at tossing up solar facilities, wind facilities, batteries, and electric vehicles. Like, we should just do that. That doesn't eliminate the whole climate problem, but like really big chunks of the climate problem can be taken care of with technologies that we have now. Then we've had like tons of progress on sort of faux meat type stuff, you know, and obviously people can live without eating meat entirely. So, you know, then the agricultural piece- Yeah. So the agriculture is hard, but doable. Right. But then there's all this other stuff, you know, air travel, transoceanic shipping, uh, concrete and steel. But we're really sort of nowhere technically at this point. And like we need to we need to put resources into solving those problems, because the idea of like a world in which people aren't going to want to like go travel to see their family like it, it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense to me. This is something that I thought was an like an interesting meta framing of your book that you didn't exactly apply to climate, but I thought it actually did apply. So what I would say is going on in the book, um, and, and you can tell me if this is too cynical, is that you've sort of come up with a national goal, a national goal that fits in the long history of American politics, attaching itself to complex, ambitious, difficult missions in order to maintain a international national security oriented preeminence. And that within that, a lot of like classic Mataglacius uh, concerns and obsessions begin to begin to merge into uh, one program. So dealing with housing costs and the rent is too damn high, dealing with immigration, a bunch of different things. But this is also true on climate, uh, that it actually works somewhat the same way, that if you believe it's important for America to be a strong nation in the future. If you believe, if you if you bought into the Mataglacius one billion Americans like meta framework, then there's this added urgency to figuring out climate change because you need to be able to do that to make this sustainable. And so like my view on climate change, and people can go and listen to, to Saul Griffith on the show. Uh, we've done two episodes together about how you would actually do this. But we're not really dealing with primarily a technological problem. More technology would be useful, like don't get me wrong. But particularly from the American perspective, you're dealing with a political and social will problem. Like it's political and social technology, solidarity, um, working systems of government that we don't have. And whether you say like like one thing people sometimes say to fix that is like we need to get moving on climate change. And I almost feel like you're throwing the ball or trying to throw it like further down the field. And it's like we need to get moving on making sure America um, maintains its position in the 21st and I guess ultimately like 22nd centuries. And that's not going to work if we can't do something on climate change. I mean, if this keeps getting worse in California, people are not going to move here because it's all going to be on fire. So it's all sort of part of the same agenda. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. I mean, I also just think that the climate 
issue is inherently international in a way that's inconvenient, uh, you know, for for a lot of people. It it makes it really challenging to solve, and it also means that if you want to think about climate in a real way, you do have to think about how the international relations element of it is supposed to work, uh, which is hard, really challenging problem. Um, and I think that you know if you envision a world in which the U.S. and China are near peers, and we are sort of competing with one another on a geopolitical basis, the idea of us forming a international climate compact seems really uh, difficult to me, right? Like, it's just like, it's not going to work because there's going to be a lot of suspicion and kind of things like that. Um, So, my counterproposal is that like America should stay number one forever. And we should say to the Chinese, the Indians, whoever else, like, good for you. Like, go be rich, be prosperous countries. Like, we're going to leave you in the dust anyway, because we're rich already and our population is growing fast. Separately from that, we have to talk about climate change, right? Because it's only one global atmosphere and we need some kind of deal on this. Um, and it's not that like America dictating will necessarily be better than somebody else, right? Probably if the Germans got to dictate on climate, uh, we'd be even better off. They have, a, I think, a more thoughtful you know, political I culture. Say I'm not a huge fan of well, the Germans dictating. Well, it's gone bad in the past, but I mean, currently, uh, I think they have they have some good some good ideas on, on climate, uh, but that it, it will be constructive, ultimately, for the United States to have a clear strategy for, you know, itself and its own global role to then clarify that, like, our climate negotiations are not about trying to kneecap economic growth in the developed world. And they're also not about environmentalists giving away the store, right, the way sort of conservatives make it out to be. And, you know, fundamentally, though, I think that American preeminence is a more compelling national project than climate. Um, I will be happy to be proven wrong. You know, if the people trying to be entrepreneurs around the idea that like climate should be the organizing principle that we all do everything around, like that would be great. I I like most of the stuff they want to do. I I agree that climate is very important. Um, But like you can see, right, like it's an incredibly polarizing topic. And actually, the more you get into it, the more polarizing it becomes. Whereas American uh, standing in the world is, I think, something that actually does bring people together. It doesn't mean that everyone agrees on everything, but it becomes it's a high-level objective that I think there's a lot of buy-in around and that becomes the basis for some more constructive conversations than emissions reduction. Desert Clan Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. All right, I want to get to the question of how we get a billion Americans. Um, there are two main pathways in the book. One is we can make more Americans, and the other is we can uh, let more people come into the country become Americans, and we're going to talk about these in turn. But I want to talk about the uh, birth rate path, and I want to talk about it in a very particular context. So it's been a an idea in progressive politics and in like national-level democratic politics for a long time 
that the next progressive agenda, and it's always kind of the next one, should be like the pro-family agenda. Family structures have changed dramatically since the New Deal and the Great Society. Um, birth rates have fallen. Uh, all kinds of things have become more expensive that kids need. And there's an interesting moment in 2008 when, I guess it was probably in 2006, uh, when Barack Obama came into the Senate in 04, he named as his policy director uh, Karen Kornbluh, who'd been at the New America Foundation and was known as sort of like the progressive policy entrepreneur on like pro-family policy. And then she was like significant in his campaign and then did not, as she took a job as like uh, ambassador to the OECD in the administration, didn't become a, a major part of his administration. And so like he seemed for a minute to be like the vehicle that would push this into like actually the democratic agenda and then wasn't really. And nobody, I would say even Clinton, nobody really has since. You argue in the book that Democrats do not take the policies you would need to be truly pro-family seriously. So what are they getting wrong? Like what is the delta between where they are and where they need to be? You know, it's it's a question of for one thing, just prioritization, right? It's like Democrats keep talking about this stuff and then not really doing it. Uh, but then the other thing is thinking, the, like left-wing Democrats, when they think about healthcare, when they think about higher education, they're very into like universalism. They're like, this is important. Like we need to give it to people. And on childcare, everything, or, or like family-related things, everything currently is being put forward in a kind of narrowly circumscribed anti-poverty frame, right? Which is good. I mean, it's good to have less poverty, so that's an important goal, but it isn't actually pro-family policy in the same kind of way. Like, middle-class people struggle with the costs of this parenting stuff and, you know, I think need some kind of help, too. Um, so... Uh, I think like those are the two kind of biggest things, right? So in the book, I talk about a universal child allowance, which most Democrats are sort of for, but don't really emphasize a lot. I talk about universal preschool, which again, Democrats are for, but they kind of don't really emphasize a lot. And I talk about trying to address the gaps in the existing public education system. We're doing nothing after school. We're doing nothing in the summertime. Uh, so, you know, it adds up to like, a pretty big agenda, but I think it amounts to like asking just like common sense, like what do kids actually need, right? And then saying, look, like the public sector has to be involved in providing it. So there's a national level democratic agenda that you're talking about here, which is a, a social services and transfers agenda, which I think Democrats are pretty comfortable with in general, even if they don't emphasize these pieces of it. And then there's a reality that in a lot of blue states and blue cities and like the places that have the highest like level of concentrated democratic governance, the reality is incredibly unfriendly to children. Mm -hmm. Really hard to have a family in San Francisco. Hard often to have one in LA, in New York. I mean, families are getting driven out of these places. Um, and oftentimes into redder states, which is partially why Texas is becoming a little purpler and, and Arizona might be won by Biden, um, although those are not, of course, the only reasons. But why are why have progressives in the places where they've had maximal power failed so dramatically to make it possible for um, people to have the families they want to have? I mean, it, so much of it comes down to housing, right? I mean, the 
house building situation in the big coastal metro areas has become incredibly constrained. And so you have a situation in which it just costs a ton of money to, you know, get a place to live in these cities and in their suburbs. And then things become very balkanized around, well, where are the good public schools? And if you want to get into the neighborhoods that have the good public schools, the houses are incredibly expensive. If you want to go to the places where the houses are a little bit more within reach, like those schools are bad. So, you know, really rich people send their kids to private schools and you have this kind of, um, you know, in New York where I grew up, I think it really comes to the fore, this sort of like upstairs, downstairs city in which it's such a great place to be out of this world wealthy. Right. Because there's like so much cool stuff to do in New York and you have this like fuck you money. And so like you just like you have a house, you send your kids to private school, nothing matters. Um, And then, you know, because Democrats care about the poor in a way that Republicans don't like they do Medicaid expansion. They have public transit, you know, so it's like it's it's really tough to be like truly poor in Texas uh, because the government doesn't provide any services for you. Uh, But if you achieve a certain level of middle-classness to the point where, you know, blue state social programs don't do a lot for you, but you you need to like buy stuff on the market, just the fact that the market prices are very high in the coastal cities becomes a real problem, especially especially for, for people with kids. You know, if you're, like, young and single, you know, like, you live with roommates and the most important thing to you is that there's, like, a good place to see shows and, like, fun bars to go to, and you don't really care. Uh, but, you know, you have kids, like, you do less of that fun city stuff, and you want more space, and it really pushes people out of blue areas. And, you know, I I mean, this has been my obsession forever. And whether you whether you have a billion Americans or not, um, you know, we, we ought to do something about this. But especially if you care about children and families, just like making market rate housing more abundant and more affordable is absolutely critical. What is your and we've talked about this a bit on the weeds, but but like the it's been years since rent is too damn high. What is your judgment on why Democrats have failed so badly on housing? What is it that they believe or what have they set up in the construction of how power is wielded in democratic places that has led to this level of failure? So it's not actually that different between the Democratic places and the Republican places. It's that the control over land use decisions is hyper-localized. And so everyone errs on the side of building too little. Uh, What then differentiates Democratic and Republican places is that uh, Democrats have just become the party of big cities and, and dense areas. So we've kind of polarized to the fact that like the the places where it's not easy to just sort of sprawl further are the democratic places but the solution which now fortunately has been picked up at, at the highest levels uh is that you need to tie 
federal transportation money to making changes to your housing production. Um, this is like in the Joe Biden campaign platform. Uh, I think I got laughed out of the room at some point in the Obama administration when I suggested this. Uh, but, you know, the wheel of history has come around. Uh, Donald Trump is now against it. He says uh, that Biden is going to put Cory Booker in charge of destroying the suburbs. Uh, but it's not true. Trump's own administration thought this was a good idea, like nine months ago. It is a good idea. Probably won't pass Congress for all the normal reasons that they still pass Congress. Uh, but like the the right people have the right ideas. We we did a weeds episode about the sort of specific failure of some initiatives in California. Um, and, you know, I was saying optimistically about that, just that, like, the issue was absolutely on the state policy agenda in the way that it wasn't 10 years ago. And sort of the the best you can do in circumstances like that is try to get on the agenda um, and then try to win win the argument. So, you know, I that's the area of life that I'm most optimistic about. I just, I'm, I'm going to take a moment of personal privilege here and say, because I've not really had a good place to do this, the way Trump keeps saying they're going to put Democrats are going to put Cory Booker in charge of um, diversifying the suburbs. There are 100 things Donald Trump has done that show like the bedrock core of racism. But that's really one of the ones to me that is unbelievably undeniable, because like the idea that Cory Booker would be your idea of a scary black guy. He is the nicest member of the Senate, like the most cuddly, like the nicest guy on social media. Like the idea that they would choose him, it's just like they like they, that is literally like they just cannot see other than he's like a tall black guy. It is his message is love. His message is love. Like it is such an unbelievable tell of the deep racist animus behind that. It just it makes me it, it grosses me out so much. Like here, Booker like has his long career in politics, and whatever you want to say about him, tries a hundred times harder than the average politician, partially because he's probably afraid of this reaction to be kind to people, and like it just it's so fucking awful. Um, anyway, I know this is not, not the good. point of one billion Americans, <laughs> <laughs> but if I were putting somebody in charge of, of Cory Booker's a good guy, like I, I would, I would like him in charge of some of some more stuff. <laughs> the only thing I want to say about this, though, is that like I, I don't want people when they come to Cory Booker's defense to lose sight of the fact that like he does actually have this legislation about housing that's like it, it's a really good bill. I mean, Trump, Trump is yes trying to make Cory Booker the face of housing reform because he wants to scare people that like a black guy is going to be in charge. But like it is also true that Cory Booker is a leader on this issue uh, in Congress and that he does deserve credit for that and not just like to be turned into people's uh, like like weird, vague anxieties. Um, like if we're going to have a billion, if we're going to have any more Americans, like we need this Cory Booker housing legislation and the city of Newark that he was mayor of, it, it like stands out incredibly in the greater New York City area as like the only place where any houses get built. So it's there's like deep roots to this um, and also, you know, a profound cynicism. I mean, not just like racism, but like the really worst kind of like cynical, I don't quite even want to call it dog whistle politics, but just demagoguery because Trump has gone on the warpath against a policy idea that his administration spent years supporting. That's a Tuesday 
um, in the Trump administration. I always think about him, uh, them coming out with the coronavirus guidelines that he then begins contradicting from from the stage. We could we could do a lot on Donald Trump, and we have on the weeds. So I'm gonna I'm gonna cut it there uh, and move and move on to immigration policy. So another way of getting more Americans is letting more people come into the country. Obviously, this is also somewhere where there's a lot of political friction and Donald Trump accuses the Democrats of being open borders. What should what should the immigration policy be here, Matt? What are what are the principles that should sit beneath it? I mean, the key thing is that we should have more legal immigrants and that we should not look at immigration as just existing on a spectrum between softy liberals who don't want to be like mean to illicit arrivers and tough Republicans, uh, you know, who want to secure the border, but that we have this important lever, which is legal immigration. And there's a political demagoguery to Trump on immigration, but there's also real ideologues, right, um, who are striving to avoid any kind of demographic change. And they are flipping every switch to reduce legal immigration to the United States. And they want big legislative changes that will reduce it even more. And that's just like catastrophic to the country and also somewhat inimical to the goal of like security and and control. Uh, So I talk in the book about a lot of different sort of potential avenues to increase legal immigration. I am not incredibly invested in any particular ones. Like, I just want to find the ones that will fly politically. If people have some, like, special reason, like, they only want visas for left-handed people, like, I don't know, man. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. But, like, immigration is so good and it is so underrated by most people that, like, we got to find whatever sort of cells we can make on it. And it's been great to see part of the thermostatic reaction to Trump, and I think rising educational attainment, is that a larger and larger minority of the population now says we should have more immigrants, uh, which which we absolutely should. One thing we were talking about earlier was the way you've had a kind of sign, I think you call it like a sine wave on the politics of race. And behind that was this idea that you know Democrats should talk about popular things. And immigration is, as you say, it's become more popular, but it's also, I think, understood as one of the like the deep hot button issues of American politics. Democrats, uh, they say a lot of nice things about immigrants, but they do not tend to support or propose higher legal immigration uh, in any sort of big numbers or clear way. There, there's a lot of fighting about the way we should or shouldn't do immigration enforcement and then what we should do with people who are here without papers. But there was not like you rarely heard in the Democratic debates a call for like immigration is good. More of it would be better. We should, you know, construct it to, to, to be such. And I think there has taken hold. I know there's taken hold in Democratic circles, like a real belief that if anything led to Donald Trump, it's a rising level of non-native born Americans. It is the cultural anxieties induced by rising immigration. And so Democrats need to tread carefully here. What What is your view on the politics of increasing legal immigration? I think Democrats are right to have be, be somewhat leery about this. I mean, as I say, the polling has shifted. I mean, now Gallup says for the first time ever, more people want 
more immigrants than want fewer. Um, so, you know, that's thermostatic reaction to Trump in part, uh, but it's also a long range trend. The share of people who say they want more immigration has been going up since about 1995 or so. It, it used to be 7%. Now it's 34. Uh, the share who want fewer has gone from 65% down to 28. So, you know, I'm medium term optimistic about the politics of increased immigration, even while I agree that from a sort of narrow, like win the 2020 election standpoint, this is not a good thing to talk about. You know, we started off like talking about roles and shifts in media. And like, this is one where like, I really want to be clear, like this book is like not a roadmap to defeating Donald Trump in 2020. Um, I think some of these ideas are popular ideas that candidates would do well to run on. Uh, but this is really an effort to like, persuade the kinds of people who are engaged enough with politics to buy books or listen to podcasts, that these are good ideas that they should talk about. Uh, electoral politics would have to be, you know, somewhat downstream of that. Although I do think, I mean, obviously, like part of the point of this book, it's like red, white and blue on the cover. It has all these stars um, is to try to urge people to talk about things, whether it's immigration or the welfare state or whatever else in patriotic terms, which I do think is is sort of politically useful. Um, one of the biggest things with immigration, though, is as you know, the U.S. Senate does not represent people equally. And in particular, it massively overweights these very homogenous rural states, uh, which are composed of people because people sort, right? Like if you loved immigrants and diversity and the vibrancy that thriving immigrant communities uh, bring to life, you would not be living in South Dakota, most likely. You would be one of the many people who grows up in rural areas and then leaves for larger, more diverse cities. So the politics of immigration in the Senate are particularly toxic. There's just a huge tragedy that like in 2007 and 2013, both cases that were like kind of like elite conspiracies to put a immigration reform bill through that, you know, the, the public was supportive of comprehensive immigration reform, but was not like clamoring for the details of this. And, you know, demagogues blew it up in both cases, backbench House Republicans, and the leaders did not have the steely wisdom to, uh, you know, stay the course. And, you know, I, I think the reality is that, like, if a big bipartisan bill had passed, most voters would have been like, oh, it must be good because people like big bipartisan bills. Uh, but also when Donald Trump came along and was like, actually, immigrants are terrible, you know, Republican base voters just loved that message. So, you know, that's a hard one, right? It's like, we're not going to get anywhere uh, in the world if we let opportunistic demagogues carry the day all the time. Like, there's no fundamentally no substitute for some level of responsible elites. And like, we don't have that now. And I don't know that we will in the future. People listening to the show know that one of my views on the immigration debate is that economic concerns are used to sanitize what are functionally demographic and racial concerns, which I think you really get. Um, and Donald Trump uh, saying we need fewer people from shithole countries and then uh, voting and trying to cut legal immigration as part of a dreamers deal. But there is this at least somewhat relevant debate about immigration and native-born wages. And as long as I've been writing about politics and economics, you've had these fights over the 
Borjas findings versus the Giovanni Perry findings. And I had known some of this, but you really talk about what is going on in the guts of that study. And I had not quite realized it was as ridiculous as it is. So could you talk about Borjas and the and the 17 people driving the entire native born immigration debate? So, you know, so George Borjas is, is a labor market economist. He's he's the best regarded, most famous of the sort of immigration skeptics. But this is a sort of distorting thing, right? Like among academic labor market economists, there's overwhelming pro-immigrant consensus. Among the public, for as you say, like people just don't like foreigners, right? So there's a lot of demand for like reasons quote unquote, that immigration should be bad. So Borjas has become the guy who fills that. Uh, he does it like sometimes in comical ways. Like he has this paper showing that the influx of Soviet mathematicians after the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, reduced job opportunities for American mathematicians, uh, which um, like who cares, right? <laughs> but, you know, he cares. Uh, so he has this study of the Mario boat lift into Miami. Liberals liked this old study that David Carr did that showed wages didn't go down. Uh, Borjas did a kind of reanalysis of the data. He says oh, wages did go down for native-born, non-Cuban, Hispanic men who are high school dropouts. So that's like a lot of modifying adjectives. And it turns out that like in the whole current population survey sample of Miami, it's like 14 people uh, who fit that description. So... You know, from an academic point of view, the issue is like, is this just a total BS statistical artifact? Because if you look at any population and you crunch subsamples arbitrarily enough, like you will find a result. It's called p-hacking. Um, so that's scholars debate. I think the policymakers, what they need to know is like, OK, native born, non-Cuban, Hispanic men who have dropped out of high school. That's who maybe immigration is bad for. But like, how many people is that? Not not like in a statistic sense, just like very small share of the population are native born, non-Cuban, Hispanic male high school dropouts, right? There's no issue of economic policy in which we give strict priority to the interests of such a random subset of the population, particularly because it's not non-Cuban Hispanics who are demanding cuts to immigration anyway. Like, we all know that. So, you know, as you say, like, it's much more productive to, I think it's important to establish that immigration is economically beneficial, because then we can have a clear debate about the cultural aspects, which is that nativists are saying that we should bear economic costs, and the immigrants themselves should bear incredibly high costs, but that the rest of us should bear costs too in order to indulge their sort of personal dislike of foreign-born people. And then we can interrogate, like, like should we actually, as a society, defer to that? Um, can we address this concern in some other kind of way? Like, you know, like 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 what's what's really going on here? Because I, I agree with you and, and and Dara, my co-host on the weeds, always make the point that like this isn't really about economics. But I do think that the economic facts are relevant to understanding what's going on and to understanding how you know the like sizable share of people on any topic just don't have a strong opinion about it and to try to get them to see like what's really going on here. 
One of the things that you talk about in the book is the way that we have a lot of places in the country that have become depopulated, a lot of cities that were much bigger um, uh, in absolute terms 20, 30, 40 years ago than they are today, the havoc that is playing in them, and the way in which America isn't even that densely populated, like full stop. So how does immigration interact with that? How do, how do you think about some of the ideas you occasionally hear for making it easier to immigrate to say, Detroit, if you're willing to buy a house there, because you, we have a lot of housing stock that needs to get um, bought up there by people who will fix it up and and, and bring bring the density needed to support public services back to Detroit or or sort of any of these places. Like I, I find this is somewhere where there's like a lot of clever ideas, but not that much public discussion to them. How do you think about those two things matching up? Yeah, I mean, I think that's potentially a very powerful tool. Uh, the U.S. Conference of Mayors sort of put out a call for this. They looked at a, a specific proposal from the Economic Immigration Group uh, that that I also like, and this is basically to let you know cities and states that want to sponsor additional visas uh, for people who come in. This sort of basic thought here is a like look if some people don't like immigrants like that's fine <laughs> maybe the immigrants could go someplace else uh but also that there are positive externalities right that if you can stabilize the population of Cleveland you create both a, a tax base that can pay off its pension obligations can keep the lights on can have schools but you also create a customer base for a just sort of random modern service economy that right now when you have population losses they tend to just feed on themselves right and so people don't know i think exactly how bad the situation is in some of these depopulated cities because nobody wants to be seen as like ragging on them, right? Like if I were to write a take and I was like, fucking A, man, like nobody wants to move to Buffalo, then like, you know, the Buffalo stands would come out and they'd be like, no, Buffalo is amazing. And they tell me 17 great things about Buffalo. Um, and it's true. Like there are plenty of amazing things about Buffalo. The problem for Buffalo is that Buffalo is cold. Buffalo doesn't have like a go-to job opportunity, right? That like drives the regional economy forward. And while there are lots of great things about Buffalo, there are also lots of great things about Nashville and lots of great things about Austin and lots of great things about Charlotte. And they are just in competition with these other places that because they are growing can offer a sort of clearer tax services trade-off and warmer weather. And it's not that they're doing anything wrong, and it's not that it's unique to Buffalo. It's Buffalo, it's Syracuse, it's Rochester, it's Utica, it's Rome, it's uh, Worcester, it's Akron, it's Toledo. It's like a million places, and they're all being dragged down by the fact that there just aren't enough people like in the aggregate to want to say, hey, you know what's great? St. Louis, right? Like, Let's move there. Like, you can get a great house for little money. There's good stuff to do there. Like, let's just go, right? And if you bring more immigrants in, you can stabilize these places. And then the advantages they have, like the rule of law and um, the housing is affordable, start to really shine through and they can be vibrant, amazing places. That to me is like the most optimistic thing about the book is to think about like a country that is growing broadly. And so communities are not in this zero sum competition with each other for jobs and residents. I think it's a good place to start to come in for a close here. So I want to ask one more question before we move into the, the, the book's request, which is, let's say in November, Joe Biden wins uh, and Democrats win the Senate. And of course, they, they listen to me and they come in and they get rid of the filibuster. 
Prioritization is important in these things. What is the first bill they should pass? They ought to do like a big democracy or political equality package, uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, tackling gerrymandering, automatic voter registration, uh, D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood, like all the good stuff. They should say, like, we are going to get as close as we constitutionally can to some kind of a fair system. I think that's good. I think that's a good recommendation. And then finally, what are three books you would recommend to the audience that have influenced you? So I think everybody should read uh, Justice, Gender, and the Family by Susan Mahler Oaken. Uh, it brings to the fore a bunch of political philosophy questions that normally get completely neglected in that kind of like technical type vein. Um, I really liked uh, Francis Fukuyama's book, uh, Political Order and Political Decay. I think about that book all the time today. Um, and Gregory Clark's book, A Farewell to Alms, which is about the Industrial Revolution and like why it is that now some people are not poor. And your book is One Billion Americans. Matt Iglesias, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Matt for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here, to Rajat Karma for research, to Jeffrey Geld for producing the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. 